and the Cardinals are on one of their first of two off days this week. So we are back with another Cardinals off day podcast. This is Ben Godar. With me, as always, is Ben Humphrey. Ben, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, excited that Pujols uh, hit his 700th home run. And uh, excited that the Cardinals have decided to score some runs for a change uh, after the early part of their week. Uh, it looked like they were maybe doing some quiet quitting. Uh, I, I'm joking, but, uh, you know, glad that that little, uh, slump appears to be subsiding and we don't have to listen to, or read about that storyline anymore. It's a good place to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was also, uh, overjoyed of course, to watch Pujols 700th home run, only a slight twinge of, uh, uh, sadness because we're going to be there this weekend. <laughs> so there was a part oh, of me yeah. that was like, oh man, it'd be cool to see 700, but I'm glad he got it. I'm glad he got it. So I don't want to be so selfish as to only hope that it happens while I'm physically in the building. So, um, well, we've got uh, some some topics we're going to hit on today. We'll, we'll talk more about Pujols hitting 700, um, talk about some of the latest news with Wayno and Yachty, as well as uh, outfield uh, and, and kind of bench questions, as well as answer folks' questions. But before we get into all of that, Ben, uh, what have we learned? Um, I have learned that pitching and defense will only take the Cardinals so far, uh, which is something I think we all learned uh, in 2019 and also in 2021. And that's over the last week. Obviously, if the whole team decides not to hit, uh, in particular with running runners and scoring position, it's going to be a short postseason or a short postseason series uh, for the Cardinals at some point in time. Uh, and that also underscored, at least for me, how unpredictable October will be, especially with a three-game series uh, to start things off. Literally anything can happen in a three-game series. And so... Uh, it's going to be pretty interesting and uh, going to be a little nerve-wracking to be in a postseason series that is that short. Uh, what about you, Mr. Godar? What did you learn? Yeah, well, and it's funny, you know, I've been kind of looking ahead to the, you know, potential postseason and, and actually thinking about, geez, what what round might I, you know, per- perhaps get some playoff tickets for or think about heading back down to St. Louis for. And and just like, and actually, you know, looking at what those dates are and, you know, minor things like uh, what's going on in my work life, <laughs> things like that. And, and it's, so it's really hit me, Ben, uh, this is for, they have to win four series to win the World Series. <laughs> like, that's crazy. That feels like hitting some obnoxious parlay bet, but I hope they, I hope they can do it. And, and the same is true for every other team. Um, you know, in terms of what I've learned, uh, <laughs> I, I actually, uh, and this is more of just a tidbit, but there, there were a, a number of really interesting um, stats and, and uh, things that came out after Pools hit 700. So I just wanted to hit my, my favorite one of all, a Twitter user named Jeremy Frank, who's at MLB Random Stats. He calculated that Pujols' average home run trot has been clocked at 26 seconds. And so he did the math and found that Albert Pujols has been circling the bases after hitting home runs for five hours of his life. (laughs) So of all of the kind of stats and and things about to kind of put that in perspective, that was just something for me to think about, like, you know, basically like spending an entire afternoon circling the bases. And that's what, what he's done over these last uh, you know, 22 years uh, of his career. So I suppose, Ben, that kind of leads us into our first main topic, which 
is the fact that Friday night, Albert Pujols hit two home runs, 699 and 700. He's joined the 700 club. Um, I don't know. What what were your thoughts as you saw that happen or kind of since then? Um, my thoughts were about how baseball is so much better equipped for these types of moments as a sport than any other sport. You know, because you have, they, you know, they announce Albert Pujols. He has to walk from the on-deck circle into the batter's box. There's yes. a moment in between pitches. And then the actual game action allows for it, too, because you have that moment where you're questioning. Well, actually, on his 699, I don't think there was any moment where anyone questioned whether it was gone because he crushed yes. it. <laughs> he crushed it. But on 700, there, you know, it was... It, it made me miss Mike Shannon because if ever there was like a get up baby home run, yeah. like, like, yeah. well, I guess McGuire's, uh, you know, McGuire 62 probably was up there too, where it was like, oh, yeah. you know, get up baby. Like you, you are pulling for that ball. I mean, Pujols had the loft, so I guess you were hoping for it to get back, but you have that moment where you're like, is that out? And then yeah. you have the moment where you're like, that's out. And then you get to cheer until it lands, and then you get to cheer even louder. And it was super cool how everyone in Dodger Stadium, whether they were Cardinals fans or Dodgers fans, were just all in. Like, yeah. it was just a roar, like it was a hometown hit. And I, I know he played for the Dodgers last year, but I, I don't think that really even would have mattered. Like, everyone I, I, was I, just so on board. It was awesome. I, and I had the same thought, you know, and yeah, you're right. It was a little, he had a little bit of extra love there because they, he was a Dodger last year and they, they loved him for that. But I think if he hits that 700 anywhere, everybody appreciates what a historic moment they're watching. And, and, you know, I mean, just as a fan, how could you not be excited? Just, you know, a, a baseball game, you happen to have a ticket to, you saw a, a piece of history like that. So I think he would have had that, you know, a similar amount of energy, probably just about anywhere, but it was kind of special that it was in LA where he, you know, with a team that he played for, as well as just a city that he played in, you know, for, um, you know, a good, almost half his career. And it was also, I thought, really awesome, um, and I, I did not know this until after the game, that that game on Friday night was the first game this season that all of his children were able to attend at the same time. Oh, that's and, really neat. And, I did not know that. Yeah, so he got to do that in front of all of his his kids uh, in the first game they could attend, which I thought was really neat. And Adrian Beltre and Dave Winfield. <laughs> yes, and the Dave Winfield shots were kind of weird and awkward. Um, and I also thought that Apple did a pretty good job uh, with the moment and calling it and broadcasting it. Um, I know people like to rag on Apple. You know, they like yeah. misspelled yeah. Lars Newbar's last name and, right. uh, you know, various other things. But I thought they did a good job handling that historic moment. Uh, and, you know, it is, a, it is a call that playing against that highlight uh, will work and and be and it will age well. I I thought they did a really good job. I agree. I, yeah, I was watching on Apple TV as well, and uh, I I yeah I thought um, the the call was great. Um, you know, nice kind of punctuated it, and then just really let the let the moment play out. And and Apple on their broadcast does such a great job with their kind of on field and in the dugout cameras. You know, is kind of. Uh, something that they've done in their production. And it was really, uh, it was an excellent time for that because, um, you know, obviously you have the, you have the home run, you have the circling the bases, but then, you know, they really, they gave us multiple kind of angles down there on the field with him and with the team. And it really kind of felt like you were in there for the, 
you know, for the celebration. So, um, so Ben, I want to hit you with this question. Uh, the, the guy who caught the home run ball, um, you know, left the ballpark with it and kept it. Uh, have you ever thought, what would you do if you, if you caught a historic home run ball like that? Um, oh, I would almost immediately hand it over and I would barely even negotiate like, like to me, and this is part of, I guess, being someone who got a baseball encyclopedia when they were in like third grade and, you know, was given his dad's baseball card inheritance around that time too, and spent countless hours going over historical markers for various players and various categories. Um, Like, like to me, I know I can make a lot of money off of that, but to me, it's, it's much bigger than me or me making money. Um, Like I would probably say, can I have a, a picture, not even necessarily tonight (laughs) with Albert Pujols and uh, me holding the ball. And then I will have photographic proof that I, that I did that. And then maybe like an autographed baseball from Albert Pujols. Cause I like autographed baseballs. That would be like the extent of my ask. Um, yeah. uh, but this guy apparently, uh, you know, he wants to go on the private auction circuit, like with the bonds home run that got the uh, right. asterisk sewn into it at a later date. Um, so, I mean, to each their own, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I don't want to begrudge anyone that, but like, there are four people who hit 700 home runs. The most recent guy's 700th homer should be in the museum in Cooperstown. So yeah. baseball fans can see it, in my opinion. Yeah. I tend to land with you on that, Ben. And I certainly, I mean, I understand the people who, I mean, you know, the, the value could, you know, can be quite high for these things. And so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't begrudge someone who chooses to hang on to that and, and chooses to realize that value. And, and I mean, there's certainly a strong argument for that, but uh, in particular, a, a cardinal moment like this. Now, I, I'd probably push it a little farther than you, Ben. I'd be like, "Hey, yeah, I'd love to come into the uh, you know clubhouse and hand this to him personally and <laughs> take some pictures and you know uh, walk out with a you know a, a bat or you know some of the other stuff." I'd probably do that. To me, that would be the really the most special part would be to get to go into the clubhouse and kind of almost you know share in the moment or be a part of that moment. Um, you know, but yeah, I would probably do that. Now, if I happen to catch a, a historic ball by some other team or something, who knows, maybe I would, uh, you know, maybe I would try and turn that into some cash or, you know, if I caught a historic, you know, Cubs moment, you know, I might just set it on fire right there. I mean, uh, well, <laughs> well, or would you just throw it back on the field? Right. Uh, yeah, since exactly. that's, that's what they do. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I'd either, I'd either get some cash on it or, uh, you know, just win like huge internet points by setting it on fire or something. I think those would be my, (laughs) my two courses of action. So, um, well, uh, let's, uh, I mean, obviously huge moment. One, we didn't think we would see this season. Um, you know, really, I think we thought both thought the odds were pretty low that he was going to get to 700. So, pretty amazing that we we got to see that um shall we should we move on to kind of as we look ahead at a couple of these issues facing the team or is there anything else Pujols related you wanted to hit on oh no I just it was so fun and just the whole build-up to it also and the payoff with two home runs you know in a historic stadium like Dodger Stadium it was just yeah. a wonderful run you know, basically from when he hit that home run in Toronto to almost will the team to the victory uh, in that second game uh, to now, it's just been this really terrific, just drink it all in 
yeah. uh, stretch of games and moments and just so much fun to watch as a baseball fan. Well, absolutely. And it's and just for you and I, you know, as we put these shows together in the second half of the season, I feel like one of our main topics is almost always Pujols. But then I feel like in terms of what we're going to talk about, I feel like it's the Chris Farley show. And <laughs> we're basically just like, <laughs> remember, remember when Pujols hit 700? That was awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So maybe we can just leave it at that, folks. That was awesome. Um, but uh, moving on, I know we wanted to touch on some kind of breaking news. Um that who knows, maybe we'll have even had some more details once folks listen to this. But as we record this on Sunday, um, there's been some kind of back and forth reporting. Obviously, um, Yachty has been dealing with kind of just generalized soreness, I think they've called it, which believe me, Yachty, I, I feel you on that one. And then uh, Wayno, of course, you know, we've heard has been kind of dealing with some dead arm, etc. Um, there, they were, there was a point where uh, it was kind of reported that maybe they wouldn't pitch uh, this Sunday game um, would, would kind of take some time off. They are pitching this Sunday game. Um, at least we expect it actually hasn't started yet as we record this. But obviously there's some kind of injury or need for rest um, in the mix with these guys. And we're pretty close to getting to the playoffs. So, um, Ben, what are your kind of thoughts as we're sorting through this? Uh, my thoughts are when a pitcher says that he has dead arm like in spring training, you know, you kind of get a little bit worried, but then every other pitcher is like, oh yeah, we all deal with that. And you just have to keep pitching and it'll go away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and now, so, and it's a very hard thing to nail down and yeah. define. Um, but so to have one of your better pitchers who I think before all of this started, everyone would have agreed is certainly one of your top three, who's going to get in the postseason rotation. Yeah. who is also on the wrong side of 40 uh, to have him be dealing with dead arm in late September to the extent where the team proposed giving him a start off. And then he turned it down. Uh, that's pretty concerning uh, in, in my mind. What do you think, Mr. Godar? Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it definitely is concerning in terms of to what extent is Wainwright going to be able to contribute to this team uh, in the postseason. It's slightly less concerning for the team overall, just in that we're in this unusual, <laughs> unusual for this club over the last few years situation this year of uh, they do have some other good options. So, you know, even if it were to come that, you know, Wainwright was not going to be able to pitch in uh, an, an opening series or, you know, even in an entire postseason, um, that would certainly be disappointing. Um, and I think the team would be worse for it. But I do feel like there's there's other guys that can kind of step in there. And, um, you know, again, this gets back to, I think one of the questions we've been asked several times that we've kicked around, what what does a, a playoff rotation look like? And of course, we've said all along, injury might dictate this, and this could be injury dictating this. But, you know, um, assuming health for Wainwright, you, you know, Flaherty was kind of the guy who was maybe on the outside looking in. And, um you know, he's actually in his last start in particular. And I think overall, since he's been back up, he's he's looked fairly good. He's had some kind of, you know, bad luck and maybe given up some runs. But, um, you know, to my eye, the velocity and the strikeouts um, have been very good. And that's something I look at more than just, you know, the you know number of earned runs in a start. So uh, at this point, if Wainwright was not able to, you know, be in there and, and assuming they're going to need four guys in a playoff 
uh, rotation. Um, you know, I think I would be comfortable with Roland Flaherty out there. What are you feeling like? Well, it's it's one of those things where, you know, Flaherty, I think he hasn't looked bad, but he still looks inconsistent with his delivery. Yes. And it uh, looks like he's trying to find that, that consistency and that groove where he's able to, you know, make his pitches and get outs. Yeah. And, you know, if you're comparing Flaherty to Wainwright, you know, Flaherty has better stuff. So if he's not firing on all cylinders and not injured, just not firing on all c- cylinders, which I think everyone would agree he has not yet. You can see how he can, he has high enough quality pitches that he can still be effective. Um, maybe not great, but still be effective. Whereas Wainwright, you know, he has to be on the black. He has to be able to put his pitches where yeah. he wants them. And lost velocity or lost location can be very bad for him very quickly. And yeah. so with both of these, with both of them, to a degree, you're playing with fire. But if you want to talk about something that, that could explode on you very quickly and go very badly, uh, very quickly, I think it, I think Wainwright is the one that you worry about there. And if you're in a three game or a five game series, can you run that risk? And yeah. You know, I don't know if you can. And so it's one of those things where, you know, Wainwright knows his body better than anyone. He turned down the day off because he feels he needs to pitch through it. So you hope that is the proper course of action. And then you also hope that he gives you something here before the postseason that makes you think he's back. Now, we all know, though, Ben, that to the media, he will he will declare that he has found something and he is now back regardless of what happens. And we will only find out if that's true or not uh, after his next couple starts. Well, that's been the, I mean, that's of course been kind of the pattern over the last, you know, several years stretching back through, you know, two different managers leading up to this one. And, and I think the other thing, and this was a question I had even before we had the kind of Wainwright dead arm sort of, um, you know, situation is, Will Ollie kind of finally be the manager who potentially can say, you know, Wainwright is going to pitch for us in the postseason, but he's not going to be our our game one guy. Um, You know, we're going to go somewhere else. Um, And I I don't know. And there were points this season where I think Wainwright certainly looked like he probably was their, you know, their best option. But, you know, even before these last few weeks, I certainly had questions about that myself. And I think, you know, you know, Michaelis and and Montgomery both have probably to me maybe looked uh, like stronger options and guys you might want to, you know, get more of those postseason innings to. Um, But I think, you know, they also, again, given the number of guys they have, they have some flexibility to maybe just be thoughtful about how they deploy them. We know that for for many, many years now, Wainwright's home road splits are striking and he pitches much better at Bush Stadium. So if they can manipulate rest days and such and use Wainwright in games at Bush, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And similarly, depending on who they line up against, you know, if they if they're, you know, going to face somebody who. Um, you know, a, a team that hits uh, worse off left-handed pitching, uh, you know, I would prioritize getting Montgomery more innings there. Um, that, I mean, that's what I would hope they do. Um, and it's not just a matter of if Wainwright's healthy, he pitches game one and he pitches the most postseason innings of any of our starters. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. At, at this point in time, Wainwright, the earliest he would start a postseason game uh, for for me 
with how he's pitching would be game three of the wildcard series. And I think that would set him up to potentially start his second postseason start at Bush. Because I just, I don't think you can commit to giving him one of the make or break games where, you know, if he's starting game one, you, and things go sideways, you're then one game away from elimination. If you start him in game two, it could be the elimination game. And so I think that you've got to line that up. So you're going with maybe Michaelis, Quintana, or Montgomery in games one and two, and then Wainwright. And then on the road, you're going with, uh, you know, then Quintana, Michaelis, and then maybe Wainwright, just depending on how those days break down and, and, and all of that. Um, yeah. Because I just, I, you're, you're setting yourself up potentially behind the eight ball if you have them start game one in a three-game series. I just don't think they can do it. And I know the, the way the rotation lines up, that, that is kind of how it looks like it would line up for them. And so it will be interesting to see if they go with the path of least resistance, kind of the autopilot St. Louis Cardinals move, or if yeah. they look at how he's pitched, how he feels, and they make a change. Yeah, and with two off days this week, and then, of course, a, a short break before the playoff series starts, I mean, they, they can line it up however they want. And and the fact that they really should clinch here very soon. So, um, and, and they they've, at this point, they really don't have a chance to move up into that second seed. So, so yeah, it'll, that'll be very interesting to see how they move forward with that. I think uh, one other lineup, kind of postseason lineup thing we wanted to touch on that I think is going to be of some interest is what they do um, kind of on the, the bench side or, or at least on the kind of uh, offensive side. Um Right now, of course, Yepes, Burleson, and Deluzio are all up with the Major League team. O'Neill, of course, is on the DL, and Gorman is down in the minors. Um, I think those guys are all kind of in the mix, um, you know, to be to be on the team. But um, but basically, only two of those guys um, will be, uh, you know, will be with the club, um, you know, unless they were to do something really unexpected, like not put Paul O'Neill on a, a uh, or excuse me, Paul DeYoung on a, a postseason uh, roster. So, um, Ben, what are your kind of th- and, and I should note too. Um, I think in the past on the show, I've said that uh, uh, Burleson would not be eligible for the postseason because that used to be the case. If you didn't come up before September first, you weren't eligible. That's actually not the case anymore. So, any of these guys could be on a, a postseason roster. So, uh, Ben, how do you see them dividing up those those roster spots? Well, right now, to me, uh, it it sure seems like they prefer Burleson's bat as the lefty bat option uh, yeah. to Nolan Gorman's. Um, yeah. So they they made that change. They have not gone back on it. Now, obviously, that could change over the next week. So I think as we sit here today, we have to assume that Nolan Gorman would not be on the wild card roster if it started tomorrow. Cause he's not on the big league roster right now. Yeah. Um, I would say if you have Donovan and you have Tommy Edmond, and this is a question for you, uh, Mr. Godard, do you really need Paul DeYoung? Like, yeah, it's, I, it's it seems no, like kind of a wasted roster spot to me. Well, but if you don't, I think potentially, except that if you if you don't have Paul DeYoung, then I think you you do need Gorman, don't you? Because 
if you if you drop Paul DeYoung, then you're you're down to just uh, Donovan and uh, Edmund as middle infielders, right? Unless am I am I forgetting somebody? I don't think you have anybody else that can that can play a middle infield spot. Uh, that that would that would reduce you down. So then maybe so you're essentially talking about does do they bring Gorman in and yeah. and send and send uh, and send DeYoung out? I, I would probably do that to be honest. Um, you know, and, and, and really what it comes down to is do, are they valuing defense or are they valuing a bat at that point? We talked last week about the fact that Ollie has shown a real preference to go to that defensive closer uh, lineup at the end, you know, for the eighth or ninth inning of a game that they're ahead. And, and Paul DeYoung definitely comes in in that situation. They've tended to go to DeYoung at short, Edmund at second for that defensive closer. And, um, and certainly, uh, you know, DeYoung is a, is a superior defender to Donovan or Gorman. Um, but, you know, DeYoung does nothing with the bat. And so, um, you, you know, Gorman, you have another option that can play second base in there. And you have a, a, a viable kind of pinch hitting option. So I, I would probably lean towards Gorman. I think I would, too. And, and that's the real question uh, to me is, you know, it's not like the regular season as much where you would worry about how you would feel shortstop in that game. Because I feel like between Edmund and Donovan, you can make that up even if Gorman is is already starting. Um, And, you know, you could, if there were an injury, you could then make a change. Um, But it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where he has just, you know, he had, he was making okay contact uh, to start the year and it's just been two valleys of yeah. since. And then he, he had an okay stretch of a week and a half, two weeks uh, after they recalled him from AAA. And since then it's just been, you know, a cavern a lack of productivity there. And it's just getting to the point where, and as you put it, how much do you value defense and especially relative to the the offense, because it has been, frankly, it's, it's just been terrible. And, and not even just going by, uh, you know, batting average, there's, there's the power has completely disappeared yeah. And he's just, he's not doing anything. It, it's yeah. really, really bad. And, and he just no longer looks like a major league hitter. Um, and it's sad to say, because I think we were all hoping he would bounce back uh, after his initial resurgence upon being recalled, because, you know, who wants a guy to go through that? And it also helps yeah. the Cardinals. But it yeah. just, it does not look like that's going to be the case. No. And, you know, he about the only thing he can still do is he can still take a walk. You know, he'll still, you know, he'll he'll fight through. He'll foul off some pitches. Um, If they give him a walk, he'll take it. But he his ball when he puts a ball in contact, you know, he makes contact. Nothing's happening. And it's been that way for a a long time now. So, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. And I, I think I like the aggressiveness of that, of, you know, getting Gorman in there and leaving the young off. But as you mentioned, the challenge then is really Tommy Edmond is your only shortstop on there. I mean, Brendan Donovan is, a, is an emergency shortstop. Um, so, uh, you know, any kind of a injury to Edmond and they would have to make a move and add DeYoung because you, you really you're, you're going a little dangerously in a lack of, of shortstop depth there. 
And that's one reason that I could see them still deciding to stick with DeYoung and as worthless as he is with the bat. I mean, it, it's not uncommon for teams to have a, uh, you know, a guy at the end of the bench who can who can fill in defensively in those middle infield spots and not do much else. So I, I wouldn't think it was a disaster if they didn't do that. But I think that'd be interesting. So so then you potentially do have Gorman on there. At that point, um, you know, do you think and certainly I think we expect O'Neill, if he's healthy, is on this team. I think Yepes is not. Um, because I think O'Neill becomes the obviously that superior right-handed hitter and defensive option, and then we but we still have another spot there. Do you think it would still be Burleson, or do you think it would be Yepes, or do you think there's any chance that Deluzio sticks around? Um, you know, I I think you would see them go with um, Deluzio if I'm being honest, because I think that they're, they want that defensive closer. And with the way that they have you number one, with what Burleson has done since he's called up, do you go with him over Yepes? I, he had a great season in triple a and I really, I, I like, I don't want anyone to think that I'm like down on Burleson. Yeah. I'm just saying uh, when you, when you look at, what he has done this season. Yeah. Do you, you know, do you feel uh, good about him getting a postseason spot? And um, by that same token, uh, what is the, what, what does Yepes bring to the table? And they both, they both bring a bat, right? And Yepes is righty. So if you've got Dickerson, yeah. And you've got Carlson. Maybe you do go with Yepes because he yeah. gives you he gives yeah. you a little bit of power that way. You know, Burleson feels just a little bit redundant with Dickerson to me. So I guess I would probably maybe I go with Yepes. But if you are worried about the late inning defense, do you go with Deluzio? So then you can go with the hands team. You know, in the last three innings. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like personally I would not just because to me, the I think a postseason series is going to be won more by you have a, a bat on your bench that you can go to in a platoon situation against a late inning reliever and can get you a big hit. I really think that's more often what you're going to need and what's going to you know turn things. And, you know, we're talking about a pretty deep bench of bats here. You know, if, if we if, if potentially, you know, you have a, you know, Gorman would you know potentially come in for DeYoung and you're potentially finding a spot for Yepes and everything, you know, Deluzio. Yeah, he's got that defensive value. I mean, I, you know, a pinch runner as well. But again, those are the value of both of those things are so tiny to me. Um, I think you've I think you may have talked me into Yepes, actually, because. You know, we talked about the righty lefty thing, but especially if Gorman's up there already, and you know, of course, you've got Dickerson, um, you've got Donovan. I think you have plenty of kind of lefty righty options. So, um, so yeah, I could see you know, yeah, probably Yepes because I think I, I believe more in Yepes's bad at the major league level right now than I do Burleson's. Just Burleson just hasn't had much time and hasn't really shown much with it. Okay, I I think I. Yepes probably makes the most sense. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, we we're also talking about sh- uh, shortstop and how many shortstops you need. How many center fielders do you need? You know, yeah. is O'Neill coming off of a hamstring injury, a viable center fielder yep. if Carlson yep. is unable to go 
And totally, totally. Yeah. And it's really the same question. I mean, Deluzio and DeYoung are basically that. Do you, you know, do you need that defensive backup there in a position that you may only have one viable, you know, player there? Um, You know, uh, you know, it's Carlson, your only guy that you really feel like is a legitimate center fielder. And, you know, Newbar or O'Neill are more emergency center fielders. Maybe you do feel like you need Deluzio. And, And I'll say, Ben, Honestly, I don't think there's a bad choice here. Like I'm not any combination of these guys, I, I'm not going to feel like oh they made a terrible decision there because I do think they all bring something to the table. And yeah, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Are you going to need that defensive closer? Are you going to need that late inning bat? Um, you know, I, I think it's a solid argument for any any mix of these guys. Yeah, I I think it is too, and I think a lot of it depends on you know how they feel about the health of other players, right? Like uh, in particular, Carlson and O'Neill, because O'Neill, we're assuming that he's going to be ready to go, but there's a chance he will not be. And so if that's the case, you know, a lot of these decisions kind of get made for them. Um, And so uh, at, at this point in time, I, I think the, the initial reports were optimistic and I'm going to assume that those, that optimism was well informed so, uh, you know, I, I think that is what we have to assume will be the case. And, yep. um, but if he is unable to go or if he's questionable, you know, with a hamstring, I would think they would be conservative in the wild card round in the hopes he would be ready to go, uh, for the divisional series. Because yeah. if you push it with a hamstring injury, I, I, you know, we've, we've all seen it quite a few times watching sports in our lives hamstrings if you push them too soon result in another hamstring injury so yep. Yep. um uh it would be um it would be it would surprise me if they pushed him if he weren't ready to go so if he is ready to go we have to assume he is definitely ready to go uh and uh hopefully he's he's ready to swing a good bat cuz he will not be able to get many plate appearances uh, before they really, really, really count uh, in the postseason. Yeah, absolutely. So just like with kind of rotation and other spots we've talked about, health is almost certainly going to dictate what decision is made. But I think, you know, in, 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 assuming health for kind of all of these guys, um, it, it'll really come down to if they're prioritizing offense, you know, maybe we see Gorman, Yepes, Burleson in some combination. And if they're really prioritizing uh, defense, both in terms of backing up and, and having that defensive closer sort of lineup, you're going to be more likely to see uh, DeYoung and maybe even uh, Deluzio. So, Ben, let's go ahead and roll into our questions here. As always, thank you, everyone who sent us in questions. Um our first question comes from uh, Chris Halligan. And Chris actually asked two questions, but one of them had to do with kind of two, 2023 opening day lineup. I think we're going to plan to hit that in a, a future show, probably after the Cardinals have been eliminated following the World Series. But uh, Chris's other question, why do MLB base runners look back at the ball when they're sprinting from base to base on a contested play? Surely they can't be faster when they do this. Why is this permitted? Are the base coaches just scarecrows? Ben, you want to jump in on that? Um, I think the reason that they do this is they've all played so much baseball uh, and they feel, and perhaps the coaches do as well, that they have a, they are a better judge of whether or not they can take the next base than the coach. Um, And, and the exception would be when they're already reaching the base and there's an error, 
Um, but yeah. when that happens or misplay, but generally when that happens, they're going to be able to take the base anyway. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be my explanation is they've played enough that they know. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I, I think this kind of falls into one of those, like, um, you know, to me, this is like, why don't, why don't players hit the ball the other, the other way? Or, you know, why can't guys bunt anymore? I think there's in your mind, you can fab, you can kind of create a, an idealized version where players just put their head down and look to the base coach. And that might even be kind of what you talk about when you're, you, you when you're coaching players and things like that. But the reality is that's not how it happens. Um, and, and I think even for those of us who played at obviously not major league levels, I mean, are there times you look at your base coach? Yes. But are there times you watch the ball? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think players tend to watch the coach, you know, as they're going to first base um, or as they're coming into third base. And if they're getting, you know, waved ahead or, uh, or, or told to stop, they'll generally do that. But really anywhere between first and third base, um, you're watching the ball and you're kind of, you're looking. And, and I think that's in reality, it's, it actually is probably, you know, faster and you, you probably get a better uh, read on that. And, and uh, you know, again, it's one of these things where it's like, that's what everyone does and that's what everyone always has done. So I think the hypothetical that it could be different is just not, not realistic. And the other thing is, you know, we're talking about errors and misplays um, where they can usually advance. There are some when a fielder is coming in on a ball where if you had to wait for the coach to tell you, you're not going to advance, but if you're watching the play in front of you and the fielder's momentum is coming toward the field of play, you're going to be able to take an extra base that you wouldn't be able to just because of the throw distance. I, when I was talking about, you can usually do that anyway. It's, you know, more on deeper plays, but on balls coming in, you know, being able to take that extra base is dependent on the base runner being able to watch the play. Yeah. And when you're going from first to second, the whole play is in front of you as well. So you can see it just as well as that third base coach can. And you've been playing baseball your whole life as well. So if your read is that ball is going to drop in front of that outfielder and, you know, listening to yourself and going hard to second base, you're going to be right as many as often as if you are looking at a a base coach for that. So um, anyway, that's I think that's our take on that one. Uh, our next question comes from Jim uh, uh, at big underscore Jim 1923. And Jim asks, okay, cart before the horse, and we haven't scored since last week, but who is the better matchup for the Cardinals in the three-game first round of the playoffs? Yeah, and um, I think like most fans, when I look ahead to this, I'm always thinking – who is the worst team? <laughs> like, and, and I've even looked ahead in the other rounds of the playoffs too, right? It's like, who is the worst team that can possibly come through? Because we want the Cardinals to win, right? And so on the one hand, where there's the noble sportsman attitude to say like, well, I want to, I want to, you know, my best to face your best. I know that's not the case for me. Like I want to play the most, the worst, most busted team we can possibly play because it increases the Cardinals likelihood of moving on. Um, overall, I will say, it just often doesn't matter. All of these playoff teams are so good. Um, I feel like it's it's always an interesting kind of thought exercise, you know, but you never know. In 2011, the last team I wanted the Cardinals to face in the National League was the Philadelphia Phillies. And they played them in the division round and they won, you know, and that's just kind of how these, these things go. If you had to make me choose, though, of the kind of, you know, Phillies, Padres and and uh, Brewers are really the three teams that are in the mix um, to play them there. 
uh, I'd have to say the Brewers, obviously they have the worst record, you know, and, and I think you generally say they're the, the worst team, but um, the Brewers road record, the Brewers are also below 500 on the road. And so since this is going to be 100% a home series for St. Louis, uh, I would say the Brewers of those three teams. Uh, ben, how about you? Uh, I am going to, I, Ben, uh, I, don't, I do not disagree with uh, anything that you said. Uh, my general rule, though, is I want to play the best team in the series that has the fewest games because I think that gives uh, the Cardinals a better chance to win unless I'm unless the Cardinals are the 2004 Cardinals and they're the best team, then I want to play the the best possible opponent in the longest possible series. But like last year, I was really happy they had to play the Dodgers in a one game series because yep. I had no confidence they could defeat LA in a, uh, in a longer s- series than that. Um, yeah, because, and, and they were, and they were very close to winning that game. Yes. Like that was that game almost exemplified, uh, better than any I could come up with, except they didn't win in the end, uh, why you want that. But it was like, anything can happen in one game. Uh, and so if I have to play a 105 win juggernaut, I would rather it be, or however many they won last year, I would rather that be, uh, in a one game series. And I also thought the Dodgers were better than the giants despite win total. Um, but setting that aside as a fan and as a, a fan of like professional wrestling and like eighties movies and things like that. I want the Cardinals to play the Phillies because they're opposites. You know, the, the Cardinals have pitching and defense and the Phillies approach this off season was who needs pitching and defense. We just need to slug the ball. And so I want like this bruising Phillies team against the, the pitching and defense uh, Cardinals, although obviously the Cardinals are a very good offensive team as well. Um, but just the different approaches to roster construction, you know, it reminds me of when you would have like Bret Hart wrestling Yokozuna, you know, in the 1980s for WWE. It's just like sheer force versus the excellence of execution. And And if you're you're going for maximum uh, narrative, I think what you're, you're hoping for is for the series to go three games, the third game to go into extra innings and the decisive at bat and extra innings to involve Jake Woodford facing Nick Castellanos. Are you not? Yes. I mean, I was, I was going to get to that. Then we also get a potential repeat of the flex um, where last year, everyone remembers how uh, Jake Woodford famously, there was a huge controversy about Nick Castellanos getting hit by a pitch and then the Reds scored a run and Jake Woodford kind of awkwardly fell at home plate uh, on a play at the plate, and Castellanos got up and flexed over him, and the Reds made banners, this, that, and the other. It was the high point of like the last 10 years of Reds baseball uh, was that April play. And so then we would potentially have Woodford facing Castellanos uh, and the opportunity to redeem himself or do the job again. And, and I think that would be uh, very riveting television. Well, and for anyone who follows you on social media, Ben, knows you have a, a huge wealth of Jake Woodford um, photos to use for every possible situation. So you would be ready to react to it however that, uh, that uh, confrontation went down. 
Yeah, some of these I have uh, sought out myself. Uh, others I have had people supply me on Twitter. Uh, since I've started doing this uh, at Cardinals Gifts, the uh, the for my money, the best St. Louis Cardinals follow on Twitter, the best account relating to the Cardinals for you to follow, you should follow uh, them. Um, it, he or They have done... Um, a few of those. And, and more recently, Cardinals Gifts has done images where there are like uh, six or eight pictures of Woodford while he's getting the sign and getting ready to pitch. It's really incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, next question. And this, um, you know, we're just talking about a, a moment, potentially decisive moment, a moment where the Cardinals would need some devil magic. We have a devil magic related question here. Cards Talk asks, due to the recent lack of devil magic, should we start encouraging Cardinal fans of all ages to perform satanic rituals and sacrifices to help this team get back on track? And of course, this, like many of our questions, came in before the the home run outburst against the Dodgers. Uh, ben, what do you say? Uh, well, every little bit helps. And I, th- I think we all have our little uh, things that we do to try to bring the team good luck. Uh, I will buy a pack of baseball cards before the first game of a series. Um, just it's what I do before the postseason, um, in the hopes that I'll get a Cardinal and that Cardinal will do well. Um, I have done that, uh, because I got Albert Pujols doing that, you know, many, many, many years ago and surprise, surprise, Albert Pujols did pretty well in the series. So now I keep doing that. I don't necessarily know that there's any, uh, solid concrete data that the players I get then perform better. I just do that. The other thing that I do is I still get sprinkled donuts because of Torty Craig from the 2011 uh, postseason run hashtag do it for Torty hashtag sprinkle power. I still get sprinkled donuts in the postseason <laughs> in the hopes that we can tap into some of that magic. So those are kind of my two devil magic conjurings. Uh, what do you do, Mr. Godar? I don't know that I have specific rituals myself, but I think Cards Talk is is right here. And I, I would encourage Cardinal fans of all ages to perform satanic rituals. I mean, it can't hurt, right? So you may as well. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, what was it from Bull Durham? Did they have to sacrifice a whole chicken? A li- live, live chicken. chicken, live chicken. To take, yeah. Yes. Yeah, to take the curse off the glove. Uh, and I, I always really enjoyed that. Uh, I'm not suggesting anyone needs to sacrifice a chicken. Uh, they also had the chicken bone that they would they would rub uh, on the bat. And then, of course, uh, Joe Boo needed, I believe it was rum from Major League. So there are all kinds of fun things uh, in baseball lore that we can do to help the Cardinals this postseason. Absolutely. Um, looking... Uh, looking to our next question, uh, Ben Wheeler asks, the Cardinals are an above average team in the variability in which they produce runs. In your opinion, why is that? What about their approach or construction causes this compared to similar run producing teams that are less variable? Uh, and there's an image here uh, that our fans cannot see, but uh on the question, there's a plot uh, from the month of June, and it's uh, you know divided up by runs per game, um, with the Cardinals uh, being more variable than some of their other run scoring counterparts. Uh, Mr. Godar, what do you think in this regard? 
Well, um, and I'll be honest, I meant to bring up some kind of team stats uh, before answering this and and dig into them a little bit more, um, and, and I haven't. So um, I'm, I'm shooting a little bit from the hip here. But um, I would say in general, when we talk about variability, to me, that always comes back to balls in play. And so, um, you know, you've got walks, you've got strikeouts, you've got home runs, but, you know, obviously that's a much smaller kind of slice of the pie. But, um, you know, uh, teams that have more balls in play are going to tend to be more variable. And so, um, you know, I think we've seen a number of Cardinal hitters this year who tend to have a very good, very good approach um, and, and frankly draw a lot of walks. And I, you know, particularly I think the kind of new guys this year in the mix doing that are Donovan and Newt Bar. And so I would say, um, you know, to the extent that they have players who are locking in good results in the form of walks, um, that's going to tend to make them less susceptible to uh, to variability. And I, I actually did, while I was talking, I was able to bring it up. So the Cardinals as a team rank um, ninth in walk percentage. So they're in the top third, not necessarily super elite, although it's, you know, the grouping is pretty tight. Um, so uh, I, th- that's that would be my answer. What, what do you think, Ben? Well, there was a good post, I believe it was on Fangraphs earlier this year. And it looked at inconsistency on offense. And the reason was with Twitter, everyone just complains a lot. And and I'm not meaning this to indict uh, Mr. Wheeler's question. Um, But, you know, everyone always complains to the Fangraphs writers, apparently, about how their team is inconsistent uh, with scoring. And they looked at it uh, over several seasons and what they came up with and I thought it was pretty interesting is that uh your team is more likely to be inconsistent if it's a good offensive team because the bad offensive teams cannot score a lot of runs as often <laughs> like they aren't good enough to do that bad offensive teams are less likely to score higher run totals as often as good teams and so what that results in is a larger distribution of the runs that they score. Now the Cardinals have just gone through that the, the stretch where they didn't score many runs. Um, But I thought that was a really interesting thing generally to keep in mind that bad teams aren't good enough to score high run totals as often as good hitting teams. And so that causes a greater distribution of their runs scored totals and leads to more inconsistency. Um, but that inconsistency means that they win more games because of those run totals. And so um, I actually had that bookmarked to go back and look at at the end of this season and thought of it during this most recent run. And so I was really excited to see this question from Mr. Wheeler, because uh, I think that's a really interesting area to look at, especially with the way managers and players use the word consistency so all right. J.D. Alfonso asks, in what ways, if any, would you like to see televised MLB broadcasts improve or change? Oh, I have been beating the drum for years for there to be a stadium sounds only option on broadcast so that you don't have announcers. You just listen to the crowd noise and the sounds of the game. And I think that would be a great place to start. 
Um, and it would also allow it to be, I think, maybe a little bit more of a relaxing uh, and just almost more like you're at the game uh, vibe yeah. when you're watching at home. So that would be the thing that I would want to see happen. What about you, Mr. Godar? Yeah, I think that'd be a good one. And I think, um, you know, something else and MLB TV at, you know, sometimes you can choose your audio feed and sometimes you can even choose between the the TV and the radio. That's always really nice when you can do that. Um, I think one challenge for those of us, and I again, if you're listening to this show, <laughs> I think you probably watch a lot of Cardinals games. I feel like it's really hard when you you listen to the same announcers day in and day out. And I know I get annoyed and I get critical of them, but um, there's a certain degree of that that's just that much familiarity, right? It's like bickering with your family. So um, I guess whenever I, I really genuinely step back to think about this, I feel like I have to give the announcers a little bit of grace. We were spending a lot of time with them. So I think some... Um, some options like that is a nice way to then you at least have more, more ways to kind of mix it up. Or, you know, if it's just a day where you're just like, I'm just, I don't want to hear this conversation anymore. Yeah. Stadium sounds would be great. Um, The other thing that I would say just in terms of presentation, just generally to me is I feel like um, everybody's an analyst now and I don't need you to be an analyst during the game. Um, You know, and I think back to Vin Scully and, you know, living in LA, I used to listen to and watch Vin Scully a lot. And of course, everybody knows Vin is great, but I know, um, and I can't remember who, but there was a broadcaster who talked about working with Vin. And and one of the first things Vin said to them was the game is out there and like pointed out to the field. And to me, that's one thing that you always noticed when you were listening to Vin Scully is, you know, Vin Scully wasn't trying to give you deep analysis and Vin Scully wasn't talking through kind of like the, you know, Twitter talking points, right? Vin Scully was just, was really focused on what was happening on the field. Um, I'll be honest, I think the Cubs radio booth does a great job of that as well. You know, they're not trying to give you like tons of analysis. They're just kind of bringing the game to you. In general, I wish there was more of that in broadcasting. Yes, I agree. I also think uh, in particular on television, and and this also probably relates to Vin Scully a little bit, is I feel like there is a tendency to feel like dead air uh, is a problem. And it can be, but it's also you don't have to fill every second of every game with talking. And I think that also, it, you know, you talked about bickering with your family. It's almost like, you know, being around your sibling who never stops talking at the yes. holidays or something like that, where you're just like, can you just, just give it a, just let the moment breathe for a little bit. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, there, there, there's a sweet spot between trying to fill, you know, 95% of the airtime with talking and, you know, uncomfortable silence. And I think I wish more, you know, in particular with like home runs and kind of player reactions, and especially with as good as microphones have gotten, I know that that could conceivably get them into trouble. But like when you have the dugout reactions and the crowd reactions, like you have this kind of cinematic angle to what you're doing, like let it just be and let us enjoy it. And and I think that would go a long ways as well. Absolutely. All right. Uh, looking to our next question, it is from Sashin Parikh, and Sashin asks: Given the second base, mo- given that second base mobility will be more of a priority going forward once the shift is eliminated, what should the Cardinals do about Gorman for next year, Mister Godar? What do you think? Well, um, 
I, to me, I, I guess I feel like TBD on what this shift change is going to be. And I think the, the, the questioner's point here is definitely something that others have raised and I think is, is legitimate that, um, you know, with the, not being able to plop that second baseman out there into short right field and, um, you know, potentially, um, I think it makes sense that, that you might be looking for um, a return to more defensive minded second baseman as opposed to the, you know, Nolan Gorman, Max Muncy, um, you know, uh, Mike Moustakis kind of second baseman that we've seen now that historically were not the kind of guys you saw playing second base. Um, you know, but but I mean, that, that that's to be determined. It, first of all, it may not make that much of a difference. I also think Gorman is a really valuable bat. Um, I understand he's had some defensive issues this year. He's also just really recently converted to this position. So I guess I'm not willing to give give up on him defensively at second base. I'm not willing to believe that, yes, definitively we'll need a, a second baseman of a really high bar next year, given the shift change. So, um, so I would tend to roll with him. But that said, you know, um, they're going to look to improve their team in the offseason. And Gorman has has value. And, and so, you, you know, if they saw a potential to move him and upgrade the team in some way, I don't think that would be unreasonable as well. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how teams approach the shift. Um, because, and in Enos Saras at The Athletic had a post on this this week, uh, and I tweeted it out. And it had a uh, a graph of where, for example, the pull-heavy left-handed hitters tend to hit the ball. And the the point that they made was that uh, the the teams are still going to be able to position fielders where the majority of these balls are going. And that from a hitter perspective, you're maybe talking about uh, a handful of hits a year at most and that there hasn't been that much of an impact on batting average on balls in play at the in the minor leagues after this change has been made and so presumably some of the larger second basemen have been drafted or players have been moved to second base because of the shift right like yeah in anticipation of this and so you know i don't know how big of an impact it will be in the field, especially with how good the data is on where players hit the ball. There are yeah. some players where it's kind of a pick your poison situation, but there are others where you know where that ball is going and it's not going to make that much of a difference uh, because they're pulled ground balls that are hit hard. And so, you know, the the guy who's standing out in, in shallow center field or the guy who is standing uh, then in on the dirt, there's not range is not going to make that much of a difference on those plays, if, if that makes sense, because it's hit so hard, it's more of a reaction. And so um, I don't know what the the give and take will be fielding to offense, but I think Gorman's viability as a second base option depends more on his ability to take the ne- next step as a power hitter than it does on the shift. Yeah, I would agree. So next question, Trey asks, if Bader and Sosa continue to hit well, does something need to be done differently next year to improve our hitting? It seems like everyone we trade away immediately starts mashing. Well, you know, Sosa hit pretty well on the Cardinals last year. Um, You know, I I think a lot better than uh, anyone expected, including me. And I feel like I was one of the few defenders of him 
uh, early in the season and in spring training when, you know, I described him, he's a good bat to ball guy. And, and so you're, you're going to get a little bit of give and take because he's not a guy who's going to walk. And so we're talking about, you know, I think he's right around 60 plate appearances for the Phillies and he's had a really good run. Um, but I don't think anything that has happened uh, with the Phillies with his, you know, up over the last time I checked a batting average on balls and play up over 360. I think he, he was just as likely to hit, have a hot streak with the Cardinals because he wasn't going to continue to be that bad. And so that doesn't do a lot to change me. And Bader's only been back for a few games with the Yankees and he's hit okay, but not like great. Um, so I, I don't think there's really much of a need to change anything. And we can even look to the, the current roster. Like Corey Dickerson was hitting worse or as bad as Edmundo Sosa. And then he turned it around with the Cardinals. So, you know, there's a natural ebb and flow to major league production. And sometimes there's a mental component and a change of scenery absolutely makes a difference for a player. Um, and if you're Sosa and you were like number three or maybe even number four on the depth chart at sec or at shortstop, maybe getting uh, full reign and an opportunity to run with playing time is really what he needed. And the Cardinals roster construction was the problem there and player usage, not so much individual hitting approach or something like that. So there are just so many variables and I don't, try not to overreact to small sample sizes, especially after a player leaves. Yeah. And I'll keep it short. I mean, to me, this is small, small sample size. Um, I, I d- doesn't convince me there's any real change in who these players were. And, and I don't see, um, a, tr- an ongoing trend at this point where, you know, players are bad hitters with the Cardinals and then good before or after. So uh, it's not something I'm concerned about right at the moment. All right. Our next question is from Buck Webb and Buck asks, uh, the following question. The only, the excitement around Pujols' chase for 700 reminds me of Big Mac's chase for Maris's record. I'm curious, how do you two view Big Mac now? I was just telling my kids he was a cheater, but I don't care. I still love him and the magic that was that season. Also, parenthetical, hypocritically, I can't stand Barry Bonds, who is a real cheater and doesn't deserve to be mentioned, mostly because I didn't root for him. Uh, Mr. Godar? Yeah. And I totally understand where the questioner is coming from on this. And I think we all kind of wrestle with, <laughs> you know, wrestle with this and, and maybe recognize their own hypocrisy sometimes. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, I've been the last week or so, um, you know, tweeting several kind of snarky things in relation to all of this focus on Aaron Judge um, hitting 62 home runs, which, you know, if he does hit that 62nd home run, um, that will be the seventh most home runs a player has ever hit in a season. And I, I think it's ridiculous. And I, I really bristle at the the whole, um, uh, you know, well, this is a real record. This isn't a real record. I just feel like that's just very sanctimonious. And I don't want to get into that. I think the the more enlightened way to view things is that there are eras in baseball and there are factors that influence every era in baseball. So 
you know, whether I'm talking to my kids or I'm just talking to somebody else, you know, if we're talking about the steroid era, that's definitely something worth mentioning. Yes, the steroids were something that was going on then. This was an era where we saw kind of, you know, offense, uh, you know, really be inflated. But again, when we really get back to these Maris era, um, Ruth era kind of records, you know, you got to remember, like, I mean, first of all, Babe Ruth only played against white players. All right. And honestly, even by the time Roger Maris was playing in 1961, you know, most teams had kind of a, a, you know, de facto policy of, you know, one or two African-American players. There were some Latin players. There was no international players. So really, if you're talking about the kind of player pool and the level of competition, you know, don't treat steroids like these magic pills that, you know, created a situation that was unlike anything else. It's just another era in baseball. What would you say, Ben? Uh, Mr. Godar, I could not agree more. The most indefensible thing that has happened in the history of baseball is segregation, white only baseball, which is what Babe Ruth played in. And so acting like Babe Ruth's record uh, is any better than Mark McGuire's or Barry Bonds's is absurd. And then you have the amphetamine era. You know, Willie Mays, I think it's pretty well documented, had like a bottle of amphetamine in juice form, I guess, or in liquid form that he would take. So the idea that uh, pitchers and hitters were not using performance enhancing drugs before the 90s in the home run chase is just wrong. Um, and I firmly believe they were using steroids probably as early as the 70s based on on some of the player accounts we've read about in books. And so the idea that the 90s was any different than the 20 years that predated it just doesn't really carry a lot of water with me. It was just that there was a different approach uh, to building teams and what types of skill sets that front offices valued, which again goes to your point about eras. And then that brings us to the Selig era, which is what I call uh, the steroid era, because Bud Selig enabled that because the owners were making money off of it. You know, pinning all of this on Mark McGuire is silly and ridiculous, uh, or Sammy Sosa, or Barry Bonds. Um, and not only were they using, pitchers were using too. So they were doing this against guys that were taking performance-enhancing drugs so they could pitch better. And so it's not as if they were just going up there against the poor pitchers who were not using performance-enhancing drugs. The idea that no pitchers were using is ridiculous to me. You know, Roger Clemens being one of the most infamous examples in this area, who I also think should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way. And so looking at all of this, it's just a different time and baseball had different rules. And even to the extent you could argue there were rules, the people who had the power to stop it didn't because they were making money off of it. And it's hypocritical. And that includes journalists as well. And so it's hypocritical to now look back and try to denigrate what those players did. Um, I think that it's a wonderful conversation to have who had the hardest path to setting uh, to hitting 60 home runs, let's say. And, you know, I think there's a pretty good argument for Aaron judge because of the quality of pitching he's facing and the quality of uh, breaking stuff and velocity. And so all of this yeah. to me well, is also, just part of a larger conversation that people have been having at bars for years. Yeah. And also, in, in, in fact, if you are considering it in terms of era and, and the degree to which a player was an outlier to their era, uh, you know, judge what he's doing this year is, uh, you know, in terms of his home run volume is, is, is so far 
outside of it. It's almost Ruth-like, um, you know, and so those are all worthwhile things. Um, to me, it's just, you know, everything has to be talked about in the context of its era and the idea of these kind of absolute counting stat, um, you know, records. It, it, it's it's a nice idea, but it's just not really reality. Um, ben, we've, we've gone a little longer than we wanted to do today, so I think we should probably wrap things up. So as we move ahead, uh, what are you going to be watching for? I, it's the same thing that I feel like I've been saying I'm going to be watching. It's Jack Flaherty. He had a good start. Can he continue to show the swing and miss stuff? But then also it's Adam Wainwright. How crisp uh, are his pitches and how good is his location? And looking at those things with an eye towards October. What about you, Mr. Godar? Yeah. And again, I think I'm just reiterating something we talked about here, but I'm just, I'm going to look at, given that there's off days here, are the Cardinals going to stick with the rotation order as it's been, or are they going to shuffle it? Because I think that'll be our first preview of what the, what the postseason rotation is going to be, both in terms of order, as well as in terms of, you know, potentially is, you know, is one of these starters maybe going to move into a, a bullpen role. So um, Ben, I have to be honest, I don't have a off day recommendation. Um, do, you, do you have one for folks? Um, I have really been enjoying these short little videos that the Cardinals have been sharing on social media uh, called the last inning. And I think we're up to inning four or inning five when folks will be listening to this. And if you just go to at Cardinals on Twitter, you can uh, cycle through and, and see those videos. Uh, Ozzy Smith has narrated them. John Goodman, uh, Jenna Fisher. Uh, they're really fun. Obviously, they're focused on Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina. Uh, and if folks have not had an opportunity to watch them yet, uh, I encourage you to do so as we get closer and closer to the last inning that we're going to be seeing Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina in a Cardinals jersey. And there's also a lot of Adam Wainwright in there, which I think is very disturbing for all of us who want to see Adam Wainwright <laughs> come back. Yes, yes. <laughs> disturbing and ambiguous. All right, uh, Ben, that's that's it for me. Anything else for folks before we uh, wrap it up? Uh, nope. Take care, everyone, uh, and enjoy the last uh, home stretch of the regular season. Go, Go